Heavenly Father, gracious God, you are the God who chose to speak to us out of the silence of eternity, and we stand this morning at your feet. And we need a word from you, and we pray that your Holy Spirit would give us awe and reverence and openness, and that we would receive your word as if it were coming down from the mountain with Moses on Mount Sinai. Speak, Lord, for your servants seek to hear. In Jesus' precious name, amen. So how are we to understand and how are we to use the gift of money that God has given us? How are we to understand and how are we to use the gift of money? We're in the last in our series on the transformed life. And it's, yes, another sermon on stewardship, and yes, it's a sermon on money, about which I make no apology. Money is a big deal. Chuck Murphy, who's no longer used with us, used to say, money is muscle. And the Bible has a ton to say about money. In fact, our Lord only speaks about one subject, one more than money, the kingdom of God. Jonathan, in his sermon at the other campus on Daniel Island last week, pointed out that there are more references in the Bible to money than all the references to prayer and healing combined. But just in case I haven't gotten your attention, let's all remember what Willie Sutton said. You remember, right? Why do you rob those banks, Willie? You remember this? That's where the money is, right? Or do you know the famous, now very dated Jack Benny skit where the guy comes up to him, asks him for a match, and then he kind of fumbles around, then he has a gun, this is a stick-up, your money or your life, and there's a long pause. He said, look, buddy, your money or your life. And then there's another long pause, and the guy looks really disgusted, and there's a long pause, and Benny says, I'm thinking, I'm thinking. It's only partially funny because we know that he's hitting a sore spot. The New Testament says the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil. Something happens to sinful people in a broken world when you put money in the equation. It changes everything. It's not money it's in itself, but it's the way sinful people in a fallen world interact with money that causes problems. And we have no choice but to think of it because you cannot love God and mammon or God and money. It's a God which is worshipped greatly in the culture in which we find ourselves. So let's think carefully about what the Bible says about money. I know you're going to be shocked. I have three points. First of all, consecration. Look at your text in the Old Testament lesson in case you missed it. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Did you catch it? And do not rely on your own insight. But I'm interested in verse 9. Honor the Lord with your substance and with the first fruits of your produce. Now I'm going to let you in on a little secret. You're in big trouble this morning because, first of all, the assistant's preaching, right? That's always dangerous. And then I actually like speaking about stewardship, which puts me in the minority. About 95% of priests can't stand talking about money. I love talking about money. If we had a minor in college, my minor would have been economics. It's fascinated me my whole life. I took my son to the closing of the NASDAQ Stock Exchange. We still have a, a picture. My father grew up in New York City. I grew up watching Wall Street Week 
I'm fascinated by this stuff. So you're in big trouble. <laughs> so let's be clear on the front end, first of all, about what the theology of stewardship in the Bible actually is. Now, I get very worked up about this because there's two wrong theologies running around in the church, and I'm after the right one. So let's stay together, and I'm going to give you the two wrong theologies, which are highly prevalent first. And so, just so we're clear, this is what Kendall is telling you not to believe, just so that we're all staying together. All right, so theology number one, which is the one that's most abundant, particularly in the culture, is what's mine is mine and what's God's is negotiable, right? Which is basically the way that most Americans think, right? I'm a self-made man and I worship my creator. It's my money. It's my gifts. It's my job. I earned it. I get to keep it. I get to decide what to do with it. And if the offering plate comes by, maybe, maybe week in, week out, occasionally I might very begrudgingly put something in. That's very, very highly prevalent. And of course, that person, when somebody like me gets in the pulpit, hates me because we're starting off from two completely different premises. Right? The Bible knows nothing about a perspective like that. You didn't make yourself. You didn't make this day. You didn't make this church. You didn't make this diocese. You didn't make our rector. You didn't make South Carolina. You didn't make the United States. All these things are gifts that God is showering on you that we take for granted in our Western culture where we have this extraordinary sense of entitlement suddenly, and it's all about us, and it's all about what we can do with us. And the Bible is all about God and all about gratitude for the staggering amount that God has given us. So we're 180 degrees opposite of that theology. And the reason why that person's going to get hostile to me is because I'm asking him to give God some of his money, which he doesn't want to do. And he's not going to do it. So we need to talk about why he thinks that way. Are you all with me so far? All right, second, and this one I really care a lot about because it's very common in the churches, sadly, especially in the Anglican church, and it has everything to do with tithing. So you get a good Anglican rector, and he's been taught by somebody or other that you should give 10% of your income to God. So it goes like this. The Bible's teaching about money is 10% is God's and 90% is mine. Now, what's really good about this you, do, you all do know how heresy works, right? Heresy is very clever. Really good, bad teaching always has an element of good teaching in it. It just takes it out to eternity, right? So half of the truth, which masquerades as the whole truth, is actually an untruth. So the thing about this second teaching that's so insidious is it has something completely important, absolutely right. Look at your text. Look at verse 9. It's right there. That's tithing. Honor the Lord with your substance, and it says the first fruits, which is a tenth, in an agrarian agricultural society in which the old covenant community lived. That is exactly what it is. It is a tenth. So why is it wrong to say that 10% is God and 90% is mine? It's wrong because it completely misunderstands what first fruits giving actually is, and it's a lousy theology of stewardship. One of the nice things I get to do as an Anglican is I get to remind you of stuff that you already know in the liturgy, right? So here's two questions. First of all, what do we say at the offering and what do you do at the altar? You can just think about those for a second. So here's the, here's the altar form of this, right? Right? 10% have you given us, O oh Lord, so 10% have we given you, right? Nope, Right? Or you, you extend nine fingers and you hold back one. And you say, well, you know, I'm, I'm just trusting. Or somehow you put something in your fingers as if God needs something from you. Both of those gestures every week, 
all things come of thee. Nothing's left out. All things come of thee. That's what we say. We say it every week. And the preacher gets up and tells us, and we get upset. But it's true. All. And we bring nothing. God gives us everything. It's all grace. It's all gift. It's all God. Now, here's the thing you got to understand about first fruits. First fruits is a very important Old Testament concept. And here's what it means. It means you give the first tenth to consecrate it all, which means what? When you give a tenth, what you're saying is, I consecrate it all because you gave it all, because it is all from you. It's all yours. That's completely different than the second false theology. It's not 90% mine and 10% God's. It's all God's. And the 10% shows that it's all God's. And by the way, as we're going flying by, can I just remind you, in the old covenant community, what a radical thing it was to give the first tenth, because when you're in an agrarian society without fertilizer and pesticides and giant agricultural conglomerates, when you give the first fruits to the, to the old covenant community and to, and to the priests and to the worshiping community, you don't know that the other 90% is going to be yours until the harvest is over, in which case maybe the bull weevils will come or some terrible storm will come. You don't know. So you're actually literally saying, I'm giving you this because it showed up I'm, because I'm going to trust that because you gave me this, all the rest is going to come too. Because it is all yours. There was nothing here when I started. There's going to be nothing here when I go, right? You do know 1 Timothy 6. You brought nothing with you into the world, and you're taking nothing out of you. I always like to say to people, Trevor and Chris and I will never bury somebody with a fork in their coffin. It just doesn't work that way. You don't get to take anything with you. I've never done a funeral where I get, somebody has something in the coffin. It's just the body. That's all that there is. So it's all God's, y'all with me? So first fruits giving means when I give the first fruits, I'm actually saying everything belongs to God, and I'm doing it in such a way that I'm saying, Lord, I want you to consecrate all that you've given me, not just this 10%, but all of it, because it's all yours to you. And if I don't give 10%, I'm actually not at the beginning of consecrating my money to the Lord. We all together? All right. So that's what the Bible teaches. All right, now, point number two is what I want to call confidence. And it's there very clearly in verse 5. Look back at your text. It's a wonderful statement. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not rely on your own insight. 1 Timothy 6, verse 6 reads this way. There is great gain in godliness with contentment. It's not just that it's an act of consecration. It's a radical act of trust. Do you remember what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Plain? The Sermon on the Plain tends to get not noticed because the Sermon on the Mount is much more prominent. It's in Matthew 5 to 7. But the Sermon on the Plain in Luke 6 is also important. Here's what Jesus said. Those of you taking notes, I want you to take it down. Chapter 6, verse 38. Give, listen, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaking together, running over, will be put into your lap. Did you hear what our Lord said? There's, here's the thing, brothers and sisters, when you, when you begin to give the first fruits, what you're doing is not only consecrating it all, but you're unleashing a mysterious dynamic in the world, which is not fully explainable. It really isn't. And it's this, generosity will change your life. The more you give, the more you have. In fact, the more you give, way more do you have. Jesus said, good measure, pressed down, shaking together, running over, will be put into your lap. A couple of stories for you to ponder. The first is from Keith Miller and Bruce Larson's book, The Edge of Adventure. It's about a letter that was found 
next to a baking powder can which was wired to the handle of an old pump that offered the only hope of drinking water on a very long and seldom used trail across Nevada's Aramagosa Desert. Y'all with me? So you're going through this really strange part of Nevada. It's very arid, it's very dry, and you need water, and here's this pump. And it just sits there with this note. And oh yes, you may be interested in what the note says, and here, it how, here is how it reads. This pump is all right as of June 1932. I put a new sucker washer into it, and it ought to last five years, but the washer dries out and the pump has to be primed. Under the white rock over there, I buried a bottle of water. Out of the sun and cork end up. There's enough water in it to prime the pump, but not if you drink first. Pour about one-fourth and let her soak to wet the leather, then pour the rest medium fast and pump like crazy. You'll get water. The well has never run dry. Have faith. When you get watered up, fill the bottle and put it back like you found it for the next feller. Sign Desert Pete. All right, now you're completely parched, right? And you got a bottle of water. So obviously you drink from the bottle of water. No, no. Did you hear what Desert Pete's little note said? If you drink any of the water from the bottle of water, then you won't have enough to prime the pump, which gives an unlimited amount of water. So it's an interesting kind of conundrum. And what the Bible teaches about giving is there's something about giving the first fruits that somehow primes the pump and sets into motion a dynamic in life where you get more back than what you gave. And if you don't do it, you'll never unleash this dynamic. There are so many stories I have collected over the years that I love about stewardship, but there is one above all the others that I brought for you this morning. It's my personal favorite story of all time about stewardship. It's about this dynamic. And I like it not only because it's true, but because it packs such an awesome punch of what Jesus is actually talking about. So here we go. We're way back in the early part of the 20th century. There were once two young men working their way through what at the time was called Leland Stanford University. Their funds got desperately low, and their idea to raise money that came to them was to engage Paderewski, who was a world-famous musician from Poland who was coming through to give a piano recital and to devote the profits to board and tuition. By the way, Ignacy Jan Paderewski is another story for another time. If you don't know about Paderewski, put that on your list. He's one of the most awesome people in all of history. Not only an awesome musician and an awesome statesman and a prime minister of Poland and on and on and on. Amazing. Anyway, he's coming through. They got to raise money. They're working their way through Stanford. So they say, we're going to raise money. We'll get him to do the concert. And the great pianist manager asked for a guarantee of $2,000. We're back in the 30s, roughly. The students undaunted staged the concert. They worked hard. And when they came to count the money at the end, only $1,600 were left. After the concert, the students sought out the great artist and told him of their efforts and results. So here's the great Ignacy Jan Paderewski and these Stanford students. And they say, basically, we, we, you, you, you told us we had to get 2000 We have 1600 And so they gave him a promissory note for 400 and they were really, really sorry. And Paderewski looks at the students and he thinks for a second, and he says this, no, that won't do. And right in front of him, he takes the promissory note, he tears it up, he returns the money to them, and he says this, he says, now, take out of this $1,600 all of your expenses, each of you keep 10% for the balance of your work, and let me have the rest. And then the years rolled by, years of fortune and years of destiny, Paderewski, by this time, had become premier of Poland. 
The devastating war had come, and Paderewski was striving with all his might, but he had a colossal problem, one of the colossal problems of the 20th century, which was most of the people in Poland were starving. And there was only one man in the world to whom Paderewski could turn for help. And when he did, thousands of tons of food began to stream into Poland for distribution. Oh, who was that person? Well, his name was Herbert Hoover. And he was one of those students. That's all right, Mr. Paderewski, was Mr. Hoover's reply when Paderewski thanked him. Besides, you don't remember it, but you helped me once when I was a student in college and I was in a hole. Now, don't tell me that it doesn't unleash a dynamic. There's no way on God's earth that Paderewski or Hoover could have known that years later it would have had that explosive effect. It, it literally changed history for a country in the 20th century. One act of generosity by one pianist to some college students just in some place seems very ordinary. No, not when the Holy Spirit's involved. It's not. It's never been that way, brothers and sisters. It never will be. It never has been. Generosity changes your life. It will change it because it will unleash that dynamic and I, I invite you to consider the power of that dynamic. And I invite you to consider testing our Lord. It is worth saying as we go flying by that tithing and first fruits giving is the only thing in the Bible that God actually says, you can test me on in Malachi. He actually says, go ahead, give me, give me a test. Try, try me out. Just you, you go ahead, you prime the pump, you give me 10%, and then come back to me in a couple of years, see how I do. He actually says that in Malachi doesn't say that about other stuff. He actually says that. Stunning. All right, so first, consecration. Second, confidence. It's an act of trust that unleashes a dynamic where generosity changes your life, it changes the world, and somehow you get more back than what you gave every single time in the mystery of God's providential work. Although it may not seem like it at the time, and you may never fully know it before you get to the next world, it will always be true. All right, you all with me so far? All right, now last, my personal favorite, construction. I love stewardship, and I love what the Bible teaches about it. And the Bible is aggressive with stewardship. It doesn't just teach that it's a God that has to be tamed. It teaches that it's a God that has to be wrestled with and wrestled to the ground in such a way that Jesus actually triumphs. And Jesus is not simply interested in first fruits giving. He's not simply interested in trusting giving, although he is interested in both those things. He's interested in what I want to call wise giving, constructive giving, shrewd giving. It's this strange story in Luke 16. Do you remember this parable at the beginning of Luke 16? You remember this really weird story? It's sometimes called in some Bible versions the parable of the dishonest manager. Do you remember what happens? This guy gets, basically gets nailed to the wall in a very limited period of time. He has to save his own hide. He's clearly not a person of faith for the purposes of the story. But what the story says is when his own hide was on the line, he literally focused. It makes me think of Samuel Johnson. Do you know the quote? When a man will be hanged in a fortnight, it concentrates the mind wonderfully. Right? I mean, that's this guy, right? Just completely, all of a sudden, everything comes. But the point is, he, and, and somehow he very wisely manages to save his own hide. And Jesus says, talking to the disciples, he said, the people in this world are more shrewd with their stuff than the people of God. And then he says, 
Be shrewd and build for yourselves a legacy, not simply in this world with your money, but in this world and the next world. That is to say, you can construct a legacy. You are not simply to be trusting with your giving and first fruits with your giving. You're supposed to be wise with your giving. J.I. Packer on wisdom. Wisdom is the power to see and the inclination to choose the best and highest goal together with the surest means of attaining it. I absolutely love the story of NASA after the Hubble Space Telescope program and it was a massive success in so many ways was launched. They did this kind of post-mortem on the thing. And what were the lessons of things we did wrong? You know, only NASA would do this. They try, they try to figure out how they could do better next time. And on the chart at the briefing, this is lesson number one. You ready? In naming your mission, never use a word that rhymes with trouble. <laughs> And see, that's the problem with wisdom is it's easier to talk about than it is to do. I love that. That's the first thing on the list. Nobody figured that out. That's not good. So somehow, somehow you've got you to have NASA-level wisdom with regard to something like a, a really difficult space program with regard to money. And the question is, what legacy are you building, not simply in this world, but in the world to come? And Jesus said, I don't want to find you less wise than people who are in the world who are good at using their money for strategic ends. I want to find you more wise, and I want to find you building eternal habitations is actually the phrase that's used. So one example, just for you to think about, the Philip Lutzenkirchen story, which I particularly love, because I think the people who know about strategic giving are people like Philip's family. Now, Philip Lutzenkirchen, born in 1991, was an awesome Auburn tight end, for those of you who know a lot about college football, he caught the winning touchdown in 2010 season when they won the championship. They came back and beat Auburn. Nick Saban has never recovered. He absolutely hates that play. But even Nick Saban loved Phillip and what a good player he was. And uh, he, he played in college. He got injured and was going to make the pros, and his career ended. And when he was 23 in 2014, his parents got a call from Georgia in the middle of the night and he was killed in a tragic automobile accident in Georgia. And when his father received the call on the deck of their house, he just collapsed onto his knees. And inside the house, one of the family members screamed when they got the news. And as they tried to sort of regroup, what they later found out was alcohol was involved. What a surprise. Uh, and, and the legal limit in Georgia was 0.08. The driver was killed, and Philip was killed. And Philip's blood alcohol level... And the reason they found this out is because these are the kind of things that be made public. The, the family, for heaven's sake, didn't want it public. When this came out, he sa they say in an interview, the family said, we literally hold ourselves up for 48 hours. His blood alcohol level was 0.377. Okay, now, and this is, a, this, is a, this is a brother with three sisters. This is a Christian family in Georgia we're talking about. Okay, ready, set, trade places. What do you do? Well, let me tell you what they did. It was not easy. It still isn't easy. But they created a foundation in his name and in his honor. And that foundation's purpose is one thing and one thing only, and that is tell high school and college students about alcohol use and how to be wise and don't make the same mistake as our son. And his father goes all over this country lecturing to high school students and college students and uh, everlasting credit to them. I went on their website this week. They've updated it. So they now only, not only talk about alcohol, 
They actually talk about distracted driving, which of course wasn't an issue when he was killed in 2014, but don't tell me it's not an issue now. And he looks at the camera and he says, I'm doing this for one reason only, because I want Philip to be proud of me, and I want these children never to make the mistake that my son made. Now, do you think that matters? He's, he literally says in one interview, he says, I'm going to do this until I die, and I'm going to make sure that this foundation exists from here till I go, and it will be here after I'm gone. That's a legacy. That's a strategy. That's wise. And it, it makes a huge difference. And you look at these high school students when he's talking, he gets their attention. That's strategic giving. So many examples in parish ministry I could give, just one from a previous parish, and I'm going to stop for now. But in my previous parish at Holy Comforter Sumter, we had a family called the Edmonds family, and they, they gave something called the Edmonds Lectures, and they, they endowed a lectureship for the parish. Okay, So they gave money to the parish so that every year the, the principal would stay, and the interest that was kicked off was for a lectureship where the staff could invite any speaker from all over the country once a year to come in and give talks for three days. It was awesome. We had terrific speakers. It was so much fun. And it's still going. What a great thing. There's a strategic legacy. That, that requires thought. That requires wisdom. That requires being shrewd. Do you think that makes a difference? It's still making a difference. That family's long gone, <laughs> most of them. It's making a huge difference. So I offer you, brothers and sisters, the biblical teaching about the gift of money. First of all, it's got to be consecrated, first fruits giving. Second of all, it's got to be confident, trusting giving that unleashes a dynamic. And third of all, it's got to be constructive, strategic giving that unleashes a dynamic where you build a legacy. All right, now I'm going from preaching to meddling, then I'm done. So you thought you were safe, but you're not. Now, this, this is a problem for you because now I'm 62 years old. See, I've been around the block, and I know about preaching about money. And I know how uncomfortable you're feeling, but that's okay because it's important and sometimes you've got to think deeply about it. So I'm after you in three directions this morning. The first person I'm after is the person with whom the first point conflicts. And here's my question for you. You've, there are people here this morning, I absolutely know this because I've been in parish ministry for over three decades. There are people here this morning who've never, ever, ever wrestled with the relationship between their money and their faith. And here's my plea. Exactly when are you going to start? Today is the first day of the rest of your life. Do you actually think that God made the whole world and sent His Son to die for the whole world so that you could have money that has nothing to do with Him? What would you think if a married couple came to me and in the middle of the first session the husband said, you know, I just love her to death. I just don't want to give her anything. What would you say to me? It would be hard for me to stay in my chair. Right? That, just, that doesn't make any sense. So are you here because God means something to you? And are you actually going to live your life as if God means something to you, but you're not going to give anything? Does that make any sense? It doesn't make any sense. It's time to get in the game. Do you know the definition of a football game, right? 50,000 people who desperately need exercise, watching 24 people who definitely do not? Well, it's time for you to get in the game. I'm serious. Second, there, this, this, is, this one definitely applies to more of you here this morning is my sense. There are people here this morning, they've gotten off the, off the uh, dime, they've wrestled with their money a little bit, and they're giving something, but they've never actually gotten anywhere near first fruits giving 
uh, much less beyond it. And here's my plea to you. It's, it's time to, to, to understand that giving is an act fundamentally of the will. You do know this, right? There's no way that in a year you're going to feel like giving first fruits giving. It doesn't work that way. Giving is a decision of the will. Jesus says, give and it shall be given to you. Knock down press. It's an act of the will. One of the only things I did right in giving in my whole life was when I was a, a pitiful Oxford graduate student, I said to the Lord one day, it was kind of a frivolous thing, I said, Lord, if any money drops into my lap, we had friends of ours that were really in bad shape, I want to give it to them. You know, just kind of frivolous. Well, two weeks later, I wrote a, it's, just, it's another story for another time, it doesn't matter, but I wrote a piece and it got accepted, which I wasn't expecting, and then I got a check for 150 pounds. I was literally stunned. And all of a sudden, I realized, oh, I made a vow. <laughs> I, right? And, and all of a sudden, you would be, the number of things that I wanted to do with that 150 pounds, you, can, you cannot imagine the things. It, I mean, it was like scraping off fingernails on a blackboard to get me to give it to him. And it was my idea. <laughs> right? And I, that's one of the few things in my life I know I did. I, I gave him the whole check. And I, did, I, did, I, w I wasn't expecting it. I wasn't planning on it. I didn't deserve it. They were in huge need. Boom. No way would I have given them that money if I didn't decide to do it first. No chance. You've got to decide going forward you're going to actually commit to first fruits giving and get there. And the last point is those of you who are impacted by that one. And I, I do want to go after you. I want you to think about a legacy. I had a nice older man come at the early service and say, you know, I've, I've, I've been talking to people at the parish about starting a foundation. I thought, well, great. And I encouraged him. I said, well, don't stop. He said he's been, he's been pretty thwarted, he felt, at most of his terms. But I said to him, I said, well, don't, don't stop on my account. We could, we could do with a foundation. But, but my question is this. If I look at your will, if I look at your kids and your grandkids and your godkids and your, your house or your houses and your stuff, am I going to see a strategic plan that actually makes a difference, not simply for this world, but for the next world? Is there any way in your life with money right now where you could be more strategic for the kingdom. That's the third group I'm after. You all with me? So I give you money, brothers and sisters. It's a very important subject, and it unleashes tremendous power if we let it. It's about consecration, it's about confidence, and it's about construction. And I leave you with John Wesley's statement, which is my favorite of his, and he knew a lot about a lot. But this is what he said about money. It's my favorite thing I think he said about anything. He said this, he said, Make all you can, save all you can, give all you can. In Jesus' name, amen.